This morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, but I'll begin reading at verse 1 through verse 11. So now to the reading of God's holy word. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let's seek the Lord's blessing on this, His holy word. <coughs> o gracious God in heaven, we do praise You and thank You for the truth of Your holy word. We thank You that it is our only infallible rule for faith and life. And as we come to this passage this morning, we pray, Father, especially that Your Spirit would go forth and that uh, as Your word uh, goes, we pray that it would find within each of our hearts that rich, fertile soil that will bring about a great and abundant fruit for your glory. We ask now, Father, for your blessing upon your holy word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. One of the important values that many Americans hold is the value of securing a future for themselves and their families. Many look for security and in their possessions, in their relationships, a job or financial security. And certainly there's nothing wrong with owning things, with getting married or holding a job and putting a little nest egg away for a rainy day. But the problem comes when we pin all our hopes and dreams on these things that can be here today and gone tomorrow. Possessions get lost, they get stolen or destroyed. Relationships end. And as many have found out, a sudden downturn in the economy can cause a nest eggs to go the way of Humpty Dumpty. But as Christians, we know that our only sure and certain security comes through faith in Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. We have eternal security that can never be taken away. But even though we, we know this, 
we can still be tempted to, uh, to look this way or that to find something that seems to be more tangible, something that we can actually see and grab hold of in which to place our trust. We can still be tempted to put our confidence in the flesh. Well, as we considered last time, the Apostle Paul has just warned the Philippians about the dangerous doctrine of the Judaizers. Those who had professed faith in Christ and yet they continued to trust in the Jewish rituals and ceremonies for their salvation. And not only this, but they sought to impose these regulations on Gentile believers, including the rite of circumcision, or as Paul refers to it in verse 2 as the mutilation. But there's no security to be found in such rituals as Paul affirms that true believers don't put their confidence in the flesh, that their only hope and confidence, their only security of salvation is the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in our passage this morning, Paul continues to make this point by demonstrating to the Philippians the economics of knowing Christ. That is, as a believer in Christ, what is it that you invest in or put your hope in for the future? What are the costs or the risks that are involved? And what kinds of returns can you expect? Paul makes this point by by sharing from his own experience the contrast between what he valued before he met Christ and then the dramatic change in his perspective after he encountered the Lord. And so first we'll consider the investment strategy which Paul used to secure his uh, future before becoming a Christian. Thinking again of the foolishness of the Judaizers, uh, Paul boldly declares that if anyone has a reason to put confidence in the flesh, then, then it ought to be him. Because of his solid heritage and all the achievements that he has accumulated for himself. He says, If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. And that's quite a resume that he lays out here. One which would certainly tower far above many of these Judaizers and false teachers. Paul was circumcised not as a youth or adult convert, but on the eighth day as as an eight-day-old infant. (coughs) Exactly as the law had prescribed. He was of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't a Gentile convert or half-breed. He could trace his ancestry all the way back to Benjamin the youngest son of Jacob. In fact, the only son of Jacob that was actually born in the boundary of the promised land. Paul was, by birth and custom, a true Israelite. One of God's chosen people, a a Hebrew of the Hebrews. The purest of the pure of God's covenant people. And again, not many of the Judaizers could boast a heritage like this. But Paul added to his pure heritage many great achievements. He was a Pharisee. 
I mean, the Pharisees were the most conservative and, and the strictest sect of the Jews in regard to the law. They were known for, uh, for their high view of the law, and they sought to uphold <laughs> the law in every part of it, and even in its smallest detail. How many of the Judaizers were Pharisees? Probably not many. And then as to zeal, well, Paul even excelled far beyond many of his fellow Pharisees as he sought diligently to preserve the purity of the law and the traditions of the elders, even if it meant imprisoning and putting to death those who threatened this purity, like this movement that proclaimed Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Paul so loved his Jewish heritage and the way of the elders that he persecuted the church, standing there while Stephen was stoned to death, and then chasing the followers of Jesus into every region, men, women, and children. Though his zeal was obviously misguided at the time, well, no one, No one could question his sincerity in pursuing the purity of the laws and the ceremonies. And then finally Paul adds, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul was so diligent to follow the law, the customs, the regulations, and the ceremonies of the Jewish religion that no one, no one could bring a charge against him. In the eyes of men, he truly was esteemed. And in his own eyes, he was truly righteous. That is, Paul had believed that by striving so diligently to keep the law, that he had actually secured for himself a right relationship with God. These Judaizers, they're just amateurs. But Paul was the real deal. Paul's heritage and his achievements certainly gave him reason to boast before men. In these he trusted. In these he rested his hope and security. And friends, there are many, even who claim the name of Christ, who do the same today. They hold to their heritage as their their hope. Maybe their parents, their grandparents, and their their great-grandparents, one generation after the other. Maybe they they were Catholics, or they were Baptists, or they were Presbyterians. And so they claim the same brand for themselves. It's their their birthright, it's their identity, it's a part of, of who they are. Never mind actually trying to live according to God's Word, or gracing the doors of a church except for maybe a special day, or a wedding, or a funeral. They boldly claim, I was born a Catholic or a Baptist or a Presbyterian, I'm going to die the same. And I've, I've heard people say that very thing. That's what they've invested their future security in. In a system. Others may do the same rigidly holding to a list of do's and don'ts. Or zealously doing their good works in order to earn their future security. Right? If I just follow all these rules, if I just check all these things off on the checklist, then I'm, I'm going to be good, doing good. 
I'm going to be secure. Surely I'm pleasing God by, by doing all this. Look how wonderful I've been doing. I have my devotions all the time. I'm praying. I'm, I'm out there helping people. They hold on to the idea that such things can actually secure for them a right relationship with God. And this was certainly where Paul was at one point. As his point here is, the right relationship with God was truly achieved by these kinds of things, by religious ritual and by by doing all these good works. Well, he surely has gained it well ahead of any of these others. But we have to ask ourselves, do such investments actually have value in God's sight? Can they actually gain gain for you a right relationship with Him? Well, let's see what Paul says in verse 7. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. I want you to notice here the past tense. All these things were. They were gain for Paul. They were his hope and his security for the future. He had fully invested his entire life in the pursuit of these things. They were a great gain for him. But, but now, now they are no longer. Now he counts them as loss. That is, as a liability, as something that detracts from rather than adds to. Paul realized that all he accumulated, all his investments, were not just empty and worthless, but because he had trusted in them for his security, they were actually dragging him down. They were holding him in bondage. That's the idea of the word loss here. And so what happened then to to bring about such a dramatic shift in Paul's investment strategy? What made him realize that all he trusted in was worthless to secure a right relationship with God? Well, one day while exercising his great zeal to rid the world of these Jesus followers who were disrupting the traditions of the elders, Paul had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. The very Jesus whom he was persecuting. In Acts 9, we read of Paul's conversion, how he was blinded by the light of the Lord Jesus' presence, And he was led to Damascus, and his sight was restored by Ananias, and then Paul was baptized, and after spending some time with the disciples there, Paul went out and he began to proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God, the Messiah. And people were amazed. They were amazed when they heard this one who had severely persecuted the Christians had now suddenly become one of them. This wasn't Paul's only transformation. You see, Paul was now a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away and new things have come, including a new value system. 
That is what Paul had valued before was now seen as it truly was. Stuff that just doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And especially stuff that's truly worthless in securing a right relationship with God. Now friends, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be thankful for our heritage and our ancestry or that we shouldn't strive to excel in all that we do. No, not at all. These things Paul has mentioned here in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad things, well, except for putting people to death and persecuting the church. But the truth Paul is emphasizing is that these things have no value when it comes to our salvation. In fact, as we've noted, they can be hindrances and obstacles to our eternal security if we're placing our hope and our trust in them. And so after Paul has this encounter with Jesus... Well, suddenly everything in his world is turned upside down. What was of a value once now has no value. What was his hope has become hopeless. What was his security is, is empty and vain. His whole investment strategy has been drastically changed because of Jesus. And this should be true of us as well. Not that we will have the same kind of dramatic conversion experience that the Apostle Paul did. But when we first come to know Christ truly by faith, and even if we've been a Christian for a while, whether as a child or as a youth or as an adult, it should change your lives. It should change how you think and what you say and, and what you do and how you live your lives. There should be a dramatic shift in these things. Suddenly those things which, we, which you may have highly valued, these things which, uh, which we have certainly invested in, you should now see as loss. As unable to secure for you a right relationship with God. Your full investment is not in your heritage. Or what you personally have achieved. But what your full investment for, our, for your future Eternal security is now in the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the gospel truth. But you should be aware. You should be aware like any investment one makes, there are certain risks involved. The risk is the loss of all things. As Paul now expands his thought in verse 8 to include not only his heritage and personal achievements, but everything is counted as loss. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Note closely what Paul says here. First, everything is counted as loss. Or he graphically describes it's rubbish or literally dung or manure. But the Judaizers prize, Paul counts as nothing but garbage. What the world values and what the world seeks for their refuge and their hope, Paul says is rubbish. Not just the works of the law, but everything. Wealth, possessions, honors, good works, these things have no lasting value. In fact, as we noted before, They can be such a liability that they can hinder people in their pursuit of what's truly valuable. 
After all, isn't this why Jesus warned in Matthew 19, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard. Because the rich often trust in the temporary security of their wealth rather than the eternal security of God's grace. He can't gain Christ if he's trusting in his wealth and in his possessions. Secondly, note that Paul is certain of the worthlessness of these things because for the glory of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel, all he had had, everything he possessed has been taken away from him. Because of his faith in Christ, he has suffered the loss of all things, including his freedom. Beloved God, this is the very risk that Jesus warned his disciples of. That if they would follow after him in Matthew, Mark uh, 13, excuse me, Jesus says, But watch for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. And this is exactly what has now happened to the Apostle Paul. His good heritage and accomplishments mean nothing when he's sitting there in a, in a prison. What he valued and what he strove hard for, they now give him no comfort because they're gone. His wealth, his possessions, everything in this life that he might be tempted to trust in has now been taken away. They have brought him nothing except the temptation to trust in them rather than in Christ. Now again, this isn't to say that we can't have things. Right? Jesus didn't say the rich man, the rich will never enter into the kingdom. He said it would be hard. It would be hard because they would have to risk losing it all in order to gain Christ. And some, like the Apostle Paul, he will call to do just that. Now today we live as believers in North America. And we live in a privileged place at a privileged time, at least for now. But consider for a moment our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like Asia and the Middle East and parts of Africa who have truly lost everything for the cause of Christ. Their families have turned them away because of their faith. They've lost their jobs, their homes, their possessions. Some have lost their freedom. And others have even lost their lives. They surely know, as Paul charges here, that everything is truly rubbish. It's rubbish because when it's taken away, and remember, beloved, that it all... One day, for each and every one of us, it all will be taken away. We will have nothing. When it's taken away, we'll then realize that it brought no security to us at all. But then when we come to that realization at that time, well, it may be, it may be too late. It may be too late to gain what is far greater. You see, despite the risk of losing it all, Paul remains steadfastly encouraged, even as he desires the Philippians and us to remain steadfastly encouraged. 
Because though there's a great loss to be risked, the gain is far, bre- is far better. He says, all things are counted as lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And this is an immeasurable gain. It's immeasurable because knowing Christ Jesus is of eternal value. We read earlier John 10 verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Eternity lasts much longer than this life. Good works. Even the works of the law. All kinds of religious ceremonies and rituals. Our family heritage and and our personal achievements, our wealth, our power and our prestige. Whatever it is that we have. All these things will fade away. And thus can't bring true lasting security. Our only hope for lasting eternal security is found in Jesus Christ alone. That Paul has lost everything. He's actually gained something greater through Christ. And so yes, you must be aware that there's a great risk that if you would follow Jesus, you could lose everything. But there's nothing. There's nothing that you could lose including the brief moment that is your life. There is nothing that you could lose that compares to the eternal value of knowing Jesus. And so Paul, having previously expanded now on the loss, he now expands on this gain or the return that's in store for those whose hope and trust is in Christ Jesus for salvation. He mentions this in verse 9, that I may be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now righteousness, as we noted before, is essentially being made right in God's sight. But Paul makes a distinction between false righteousness and true righteousness. False righteousness comes from the works of the law, whereas Paul said before, through the confidence in the flesh. This was the righteousness that the people like the Judaizers and the Pharisees proclaimed. And even today, many people, even in the church, seek false, this false righteousness or self-righteousness. See, it's self-righteousness because if it comes from what we've done, whether it's the works of the law or some other vain hope, then it's truly our own righteousness. And as the Lord has clearly declared to us that our own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags in His sight. But true righteousness isn't of our own doing. It comes to us as a free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Note carefully what Paul says here, that the righteousness Paul desires and claims is not my own, but rather it comes from God by faith. It's not something we do or earn. But it's a gift which God freely gives to us through faith. Now this is an important truth, one on which the reformer Martin Luther declared that the church stands or falls. 
justification by faith alone. This is an important truth. It's not our works. It's not our heritage. It's not our achievements or our worldly goods. And it's not even these things mixed or mingled with faith. No, by faith alone we're justified. That is, we're declared by God's decree. Not our own will, but by God's decree we're declared to be in a righteous relationship with Him. The perfect and pure righteousness of Jesus Christ is freely given and bestowed upon the undeserving sinner because of God's great love for us. This is the righteousness in which we ought to pursue and invest our hearts and our lives in. And when we do, even though we may endure a great and significant loss in our lives, there are many great blessings that flow and flow to us from this righteousness given to us by God's grace. First Paul says in verse 10, <clears throat> that I may know Him. That is when we're blessed with the righteousness that comes from God, when we're declared by Him to be in a right relationship with Him, when we're enabled to know God the Father and Christ our Savior more deeply and more intimately. Again, as John declares in 1 John 5, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. What a rich blessing to know personally the one through whom and for whom all things have been created. And secondly, Paul says that I may know the power of His resurrection. What kind of blessing is the power of resurrection? What's the blessing of having a, a living, victorious Savior? A Savior who has conquered the great enemies of Satan so that no one can accuse us now. He has conquered the enemy of sin so that we might have forgiveness. And He has conquered finally the enemy of death so that we might live forever in Him. The power of His resurrection is what fuels our faith, our hope, and the sure and certain security of our future blessedness. Thirdly is the fellowship of His suffering being conformed to His death. The blessing here is is that we would have true communion and fellowship with the One who gave up all things, including His position of glory and honor at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly, in heavenly realms. Christ our Savior came in the flesh to identify with us in our suffering and He endured the curse of death on our behalf, losing all things and gaining the righteousness from God we identify with Him in his suffering and death. And the final blessing Paul notes here in verse 11. That I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the resurrection to eternal life. That's our secure hope and promise at the end of the age. When Christ returns. This is the grand everlasting result of the economics of truly knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Of trusting in him for our salvation, of finding our righteousness not in our heritage, not in our achievements, not in our good works, but solely in the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, everything else, 
Everything else is rubbish when compared to Christ and the blessing that belong to us by faith. What is it that you're investing in for your future? Not your future in this life, but your future in eternity. Is it the things around you, is it your religious rituals, is it the works that you do, your possessions, your wealth, your relationships? May it never be. But may this truly be your sure and certain security. The grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. May that truly be your only hope. Your only security. All to the glory of God. Amen. Gracious God in heaven, we... Rejoice and give thanks, Father, again for this reminder and this challenge that we ought not to put our trust in ourselves, in men, in our works, not even in our religious practices and rituals. All these things are but filthy rags in your sight. It is only the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us by faith And being wrapped and clothed in His holy and righteous robes. That is our security. That is our hope. That is what will never be taken away from us. And we pray, Father, that as Your Spirit applies these truths to each of our hearts here, that we would come to realize that. And we would cling to it knowing that you hold us fast, resting and trusting in your grace for our salvation and eternal life in your glorious presence with this fullness of joy forever and ever and ever. Father, we pray that you would form and fashion us after your own likeness in these things, that we would truly count it all loss for the excellence of knowing you, our Savior, our God and our King. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.